Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill, Norman Bates, Annie Wilkes, Dexter, Patrick Bateman. Despite, or perhaps because of, these characters' seemingly maladaptive and malevolent behavior, they fascinate us. They terrify us. They invite us to take a closer look and step into their world. These names have been cemented in modern entertainment, but their real-life counterparts have existed for as long as people have walked the earth. Lurking in the fringes, preying on the weakest among us, manipulating and taking advantage of every situation, every person they meet, to help them get what they want. They look like us, and they seem to behave no differently than everyone else. But inside, they are hiding a terrifying emptiness, a void that can consume other people without a flicker of remorse. I'm talking, of course, about psychopaths. For many reasons, the idea of a person who commits shocking violence fascinates us. They don't seem to belong in society, and yet they often appear to adapt fairly well, sometimes even excel. But what is a psychopath? How do you recognize one, and how do you diagnose one? Have you ever been in the presence of a psychopath? Brushed shoulders on the train? Sat across dinner from one? And, if you have, then what? Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. study posited that about one in a hundred people, so one percent of people, meet criteria for psychopathy. That number jumps dramatically when we look at the prison system. While many of the characters that we see in the media are serial killers, most psychopaths will never commit murder or even be truly violent. So psychologically speaking, what is a psychopath? Let's look at the more basic scientific classification of psychopathy. According to Jennifer Scheme, one of today's top researchers on the subject, psychopathy is, quote, a personality disorder characterized by enduring antisocial behavior, diminished empathy and remorse, and disinhibited or bold behavior. So, first of all, Psychopathy is technically a subset of a personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder to be specific, although this is debated in the field and we'll get to that later. This differentiates it from something like a mood disorder, which tends to be related primarily to emotional dysregulation. Personality disorders affect emotions, to be sure, but they also impact how a person interacts with others, how they think about problems, and how they read situations. Cluster A is the odd or eccentric cluster. 
Paranoid, schizoid, and schizotypal personality disorders fall into this category. Cluster B is the dramatic, emotional, and erratic cluster, and it contains borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. Cluster C is the anxious and fearful cluster, and this includes avoidant, dependent, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders. So, psychopathy is a subset of antisocial personality disorder, one of the disorders on cluster B. As Dr. Scheme described, it is characterized by antisocial behavior, which doesn't mean a person who is not interested in social interaction. Rather, it means a person who displays behavior that is counter to normal social interactions and the laws and customs of society. Additionally, psychopaths show a marked lack of empathy for others, and they appear unable to interpret and understand the pain that other people feel, both emotionally and physically. On top of this, they don't feel remorse for their actions or guilt for the hurt that they may cause to other people. These qualities, coupled with bold and impulsive behavior, set them apart. They are able, and even eager, to make rash decisions and commit extreme acts with no remorse or regard for the effect that their actions have on other people. They are, basically, the perfect predator. While psychopathy is not distinguished from antisocial personality disorder in the DSM, there is great need for it to be identified and understood. The exact root of the disorder is unclear, but it appears to have a genetic component and strong physiological implications. One twin study found evidence that both callous, unemotional traits and antisocial tendencies may be genetic, and skin conductance tests show that psychopathic people have lower sympathetic nervous system reaction when they are shown aversive stimuli. This is probably caused by lack of fear, which may play a role in the fact that they generally fail to accurately process the cues needed for prosocial behavior. Psychopathic traits are pretty stable across development, meaning that they don't disappear as a child grows up, and socioeconomic status and quality of parenting are significant predictors of this stability, all of which suggests the importance of environment in the development of psychopathic traits. Brain imaging is now revealing that the functioning and possibly even the structure of psychopaths' brains most likely contribute to behavioral issues like impulsivity, poor emotional processing, and low inhibitions. The main regions involved are the amygdala, which is often associated with fear response, the hippocampus, which plays a role in many things, including memory, and the prefrontal cortex, which is crucial for decision-making. But it's still unclear exactly what all of these things may mean. All these factors can make for the perfect violent criminal cocktail. When you add deviant sexual arousal to the mix, you have a dangerous combination that results in sexual homicide more than any other profile. For all of these reasons, it's incredibly important to be able to identify psychopaths, especially in forensic settings. And today, the gold standard for doing this is the PCLR, the Psychopathy Checklist Revised. 
This episode will explore the content and the history of this important diagnostic tool, as well as its impact on psychology. We'll start at the beginning. Early 20th century clinicians were focused on the psychodynamic approach. Freud and his psychosexual stages and his theories about the unconscious were all the rage, and practically no one cared about the measurement or evidence for psychological disorders. Then, in 1941, Hervey Cleckley published a book called The Mask of Sanity, an attempt to clarify some issues about the so-called psychopathic personality. There remains for our consideration a large body of people who are incapable of leading normal lives and whose behavior causes great distress in every community. This group does not find a categorical haven among the psychoneurotic. They are also distinguished practically by their ability to adjust without major difficulties in the social group. Who then are these relatively unclassified people? And what is the nature of their disorder? The answers are not easy to formulate. Traditionally, the psychopath has been placed in general diagnostic categories containing many other disorders, deviations, abnormalities, or deficiencies, most of which have little or no resemblance to his actual condition. After many years of work in psychiatry as a member of the staff in a closed hospital devoted to the treatment of mental disorders, and after many other years in charge of the psychiatric service in a general hospital, I believe that these curious people referred to as sociopaths or psychopaths in the vernacular of the ward in the staff room offer a field of study in personality disorder more baffling and more fascinating than any other. He wrote that the psychopath is an outwardly perfect mimic of a normally functioning person who is able to mask their fundamental lack of internal personality structure. He stated that such people experience an internal chaos that leads to repeated destructive behavior, which is often more self-destructive than destructive to others. He said that despite a seemingly sincere, intelligent, even charming external presentation, the psychopathic person does not actually have the ability to experience any genuine emotions. Is this disguise chosen to intentionally hide a lack of internal structure, he asked? Ultimately, he concluded that all of this falsehood conceals a serious but unidentified neuropsychiatric defect. Cleckley supported these statements with case studies, focusing on specific patients he had seen whose behavior and outlook seemed to support his theories. He did not write about criminality or the frequency with which the people he described turned to deviant behavior, but he did create a list of items unique to this newly identified group. Essentially, he was trying to figure out exactly what is it that sets them apart. His list had 16 items on it, and for the sake of time, I won't read them all here, but there will be a link where you can find them all on our show page. This list, Cleckley's 16 items, led to a 10-day debate at the 1975 NATO Advanced Study Institute about the definition of psychopathy and spurred the need for good psychometrics to detect psychopaths. Suddenly, it seemed crucially important to figure out a way to find these people. And into this new void stepped Robert Hare and his psychopathy checklist. Robert Hare was born in 1934 in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. 
He earned a PhD in experimental psychology at the University of Western Ontario, where he primarily studied psychopathology and psychophysiology. His time working in the prisons of British Columbia led him to an interest in psychopathy, which led in turn to frustration about the lack of agreed-upon definitions. In the late 1970s, he began to draft a checklist to help identify psychopaths based largely on the traits that Cleckley had already written about. In fact, Hare corresponded frequently with Cleckley as he worked, and published his first psychopathy checklist in 1980. After Cleckley's death in 1984, Hare edited and renamed the checklist, calling it the Hare Psychopathy Checklist Revised, or PCLR. It was made available to the criminal justice system in 1991, and it was updated with extra data in a second edition just in 2003. Hare's checklist uses a mixed format, so it has semi-structured interviews, information that's gathered from a person's case history, and a scoring criteria that uses a 20-item scale with three possible scores for each item. A zero means the item doesn't apply to the patient at all. A one means it applies somewhat, so the trait is there, but it's not highly dominant. And a two means it fits the person perfectly and defines dominant traits in his or her character or behavior. The highest possible score that you can get on the checklist is a 40. A normal, non-psychopathic person will score between a 3 and a 6, with a 4 being the average estimate. In the U.S., a score at or above 30 means that the person is a psychopath. In the U.K., 25 is high enough for this diagnosis. In order to make the revisions that appeared in the 1991 version of the checklist, the PCLR, five samples of men, all in prison or held in forensic psychiatric institutions, were examined. Very few of those in the prison population had psychotic disorders, but unsurprisingly, there were a range of disorders seen in the psychiatric setting. Just like with the original checklist, they were scored on the same three-point scale. The tests were given by different types of raters, like clinical psychologists, graduate students, and research assistants, and whenever possible, more than one rater was involved in an examination. The result of this work was a more clear breakdown of the traits of psychopaths. The 20 traits are separated out into two categories, or factors, with factor one containing the classic psychopathy characteristics, which are also called the true psychopathy characteristics. These deal with the psychological, mental, or emotional features of the psychopath, so how he or she feels, what his or her emotional makeup may be, and what the resulting thought process and general mindset may look like. Hare identifies these true traits as the following. 1. Glibness, superficial charm. 2. Grandiose sense of self-worth. 3. Need for stimulation or proneness to boredom. 4. Pathological lying. 5. Cunning and manipulative behavior. 6. Lack of remorse or guilt. 7. Shallow affect. 8. Callous or lack of empathy. The factor 2 traits are known as the false psychopathy characteristics, and they deal more with conduct, activities, demeanor, things like antisocial traits and criminal and aggressive or deviant features. These false traits include the following. 9. A parasitic lifestyle. 10. Poor behavioral controls. 11. Promiscuous sexual behavior. 12. Early behavior problems. 13. 
Lack of realistic long-term goals. 14. Impulsivity. 15. Irresponsibility. 16. Failure to accept responsibility for one's own actions. 17. Many short-term marital relationships. 18. Juvenile delinquency. 19. Revocation of conditional release. And 20. Criminal versatility. All of these traits can be broken into four main groups. Antisocial, interpersonal, affective, and lifestyle. Antisocial relates to behavioral and criminal traits like juvenile delinquency, something seen in stories about people like Jeffrey Dahmer. Interpersonal focuses on interactions with other people like superficial charm and glibness. Ted Bundy is the classic example. Affective contains things like a lack of empathy and remorse, something that's seen pretty much across the board with psychopaths. And lifestyle pertains to the need for stimulation. Look up Albert Fish and his needles if you need an example of that. All of this research and analysis helps to create a much better psychopathy checklist, but there are definitely some strengths and weaknesses to the methods and the results. On the plus side, the PCLR has a high reliability and concurrent validity. This means that it both tests what it says it tests, and that high scores do actually correlate with higher levels of psychopathy. These are two very important things. More problematically, however, is the population that was used in the sample. All of the participants were criminals, and there was very minimal ethnic or gender diversity. Harris often come into conflict with his peers because of the omission of psychopathy in the DSM. Despite all of his research and efforts to distinguish psychopathy as its own disorder, it's still lumped into antisocial personality disorder. Hare believes that the DSM needs to categorize psychopathy as a unique disorder because he believes it has no precise equivalent. As a matter of fact, up until the DSM-3, which was published in 1980, psychopathy was a listed disorder. But then it was just renamed antisocial personality disorder, not split out as its own condition. According to today's metrics, most psychopaths do meet the criteria for ASPD, but most individuals with ASPD are not psychopaths, and the PCLR may have highlighted the particular ways in which psychopaths are different. One twin study actually found that four factors of the PCLR load onto a single genetic factor. Only time will tell whether the two will be split apart in a future edition of the DSM, but if it happens, it will definitely be partly because of Robert Hare. All this debate aside, what to do with the diagnosis of psychopathy is still uncertain. In the case of most disorders, diagnosis and measurement creates the possibility of treatment. By defining what's wrong, it's usually possible to work towards making it right or at least better. Psychopathy, however, is a bit different. It has long been believed that psychopaths cannot actually benefit from treatment because antisocial personality disorder is made up of an enduring set of traits. As psychoanalyst Otto Kernberg has stated, the prognosis for effectively treating psychopathy is practically zero. According to Kernberg, quote, the main therapeutic task is to protect the family, the therapist, and society from such a patient. Some research has even indicated that attempts to change the behavior of psychopathic offenders using empathy training or improved interpersonal skills 
may actually lead to more post-release offenses. And this is probably because group and insight-oriented programs might just be helping psychopaths develop better manipulation skills when they get out in the world. Recent research, however, suggests that there may be some progress to be made in terms of the harm they perpetrate. If psychopaths' unique traits are taken into consideration, and the focus of the treatment is on teaching them that they alone are responsible for their behavior, and that they can use their strengths and abilities in more pro-social ways to still get what they want, it may be possible to decrease the seriousness of future offenses. More specifically, a study by Jennifer Scheme, who I quoted at the top of the episode, found that, quote, psychopathic traits do not moderate the effect of treatment involvement on violence. Psychopathic patients appear as likely as non-psychopathic patients to benefit from adequate treatment in terms of violence reduction. This means that while it might not be possible to change many of the classic psychopathic traits, it may be possible to reduce the amount of violence that a psychopath inflicts on others. And that, at least, is cause for hope. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with editing help from Mario Rivera. As always, our original sound design and music composition is all done by Cameron Carter. If you like what we do, please take a moment to write us a review. It really helps us out. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at Psychologia Pod, and visit our website for links to source materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological.